This is Maria McKenzie, and welcome to Provocative History, a program featuring historical fiction and fact that just might make you laugh, cry, or think. I've always been fascinated by the world of spies and private eyes, and I've been a fan of detective shows since I can remember. TVPIs do whatever it takes to find the facts, sometimes even by dishonest means. There's always a little something shady about them. They're cynical, and some even have criminal pasts. So, of course, they make fascinating fictional characters. Now, have you ever been interested in the history of spies and private eyes? I have, and I found a great article at the North American Investigation site. And I'll share a little of what I learned. The history of spies dates all the way back to ancient times. Espionage is first mentioned in the Old Testament of the Bible in the book of Numbers. Here God tells Moses to send men to spy on Canaan. So 12 spies who were leaders of their ancestral tribes were sent ahead by Moses to explore Canaan during the Jews' long journey from Egypt to the Promised Land. So from that you can see that private investigation has existed for thousands of years. But the first known private detective agency was founded in 1833 by a man named Eugène-Francois Vidoche. He was a French soldier, privateer, and guess what? Criminal. In France, the Office of Intelligence was staffed by men of similar questionable backgrounds, most being ex-convicts. And because of this, official law enforcement attempted to shut down the operation several times. Vidoch introduced record-keeping, criminology, and ballistics to the field of criminal investigation. He also began the practice of creating plaster casts of shoe prints and indelible ink and unalterable bond paper. To this day, some aspects of his method of anthropometrics, which is the study of the human body and its movement, is still in use today. In France, uh, the private investigation industry actually came into existence as a response to a need. Back in the olden days, clients went to private investigators hoping that they would do work and act as the police in situations where official law enforcement officers were ill-equipped or simply not willing. Mostly, they were employed by wealthy business owners who utilized them to resolve labor disputes. The French, Revolution, the French Revolution was still fresh in people's minds at this time, so the primary function of the private investigators was to control workers and keep the peace. They also did mercenary work as well as acted as private security. In the United States... Alan Pinkerton was making a name for himself as a criminal detective. In 1849, after he informed on a band of counterfeiters to his local sheriff, he was appointed as the first police detective in Chicago. A year later, he became a partner with Chicago lawyer Edward Rucker and formed the Pinkerton National Detective Agency. That company exists today as Pinkerton Consulting and Investigations. It's believed that the term private eye originated from Pinkerton's choice of business insignia, which was a wide open eye with the caption, we never sleep. During the Civil War, Pinkerton headed the Union Intelligence Service, 
and this was the predecessor to the U.S. Secret Service. Pinkerton and his men took undercover jobs posing as members of the Confederate Army and sympathizers to acquire military intelligence. Today, the services of private investigators have become invaluable in everything from assisting crime investigations to finding missing persons. And as I mentioned earlier, they make great fictional characters. I love uh, writing historical fiction, but not long ago, I tried my hand at writing a contemporary mystery called From Cad to Cadaver. I absolutely loved writing this novel, and I had a great time creating Private Eye, Tracy Black. So today I'll close by reading from Chapter 1 uh, from Cad to Cadaver, and I hope you enjoy it. Tracy, baby, you are one hot mama, Dr. Terrence Jackson says to me. But how can I be a baby and a mama at the same time without literally being a baby mama, which I am not? Which brings me to another question. Why did I agree to go out with this clown in the first place? Oh, yeah, that's easy. I have no life. That little black dress, Terrence goes on. Hot, baby. Looks like it's painted on in high gloss. Okay, so my dress is a little form-fitting, but I wouldn't go as far as to say it looks painted on. As Terrence's wolf eyes continue to rove over me, I say with a pronounced lack of luster, You don't look half bad yourself. And actually, he doesn't. He sports a simple black tux with black bow tie on his weasel-thin frame. Hey, you like this? Terrence sweeps his hands over his tux. Vera Wang, baby, it takes a woman to dress a man. Tracy, baby, before we go, I need to ask you a favor. Anything, if you'll stop calling me Tracy, baby. He laughs. You're a funny one. No, you're unique. There's only one Tracy Black. Not if you look in the white pages. Seriously, Tracy, baby, here's the favor. Don't tell anyone you're ex-FBI. All my partners are going to be seated at our table tonight, and I told them I'd be bringing the real deal, a real FBI agent. I'm speechless. At one time, I was a real-life agent. Terrence has just arrived at my apartment, and this evening he's taking me to a black tie gala at Queen City University Hospital, where he works as an orthopedist. The guest of honor is a Saudi sheik whose son attends the university. After an automobile accident six months ago, the son had surgery at the university's hospital that saved his life. To show his gratitude, said Sheikh donated like a gazillion dollars for a new medical research facility. It'll just be more exciting that way, Terrence continues. You know, with our special Saudi guest and his entourage, I thought it'd be fun to have people think I'm bringing along a spy just to keep an eye on things. You know, Arabs, terrorists, he laughs. My brother's going to be there, too, and he's the only one who knows you're not still FBI. But I told him, mum's the word on that. Disgusted, I cross my arms and sigh. Terrence, I could get arrested for impersonating an agent. I'm not asking you to impersonate one. Just don't tell anyone you resigned from the bureau. He gives me that smarmy smile of his, then offers the crook of his arm. He escorts me to his silver sob, a Swedish car that has some type of mysterious prestige. Anytime he passes another guy in one, they give each other a signal that implies how special they are. Terrence once told me every black man working has a BMW. Get it? Black man working. BMW. But only a fortunate few have discovered the wonder of the Saab. <laughs> Whatever. 
Once at his car, he opens the door for me saying, our carriage awaits and the evening is off to a lovely start. Not in Cincinnati's black female community. Terrence Jackson is a good catch, a very good catch, and he knows it. He's a doctor, a black doctor, and good black men are at a premium. Good meaning well-educated and lucratively employed. I'll put it another way. Not a PhD in philosophy slinging burgers at Wendy's. We're talking MBA at Procter & Gamble or an MD in a practice. Since there are so few good catches in the black male market, the available ones tend to play the field and put off commitment indefinitely like Terrence. He understands my relationship issues, so he's not, he knows not to expect anything from me in the realm of intimacy. He met me a couple of years ago when I was living out of town and visiting back here at home for Christmas. He's my Aunt Constance's orthopedist. She introduced us. I think she had hopes that we'd get married or something. You'll love him, Tracy. He's a doctor and good-looking. She'd gush before I agreed to her setting us up. Regardless of his profession and his easiness on the eyes, marriage is not going to happen. Aunt Constance wasn't exaggerating about his looks. Even though he's on the thin side and not quite six feet, he's somewhat handsome. His skin is about the shade of cinnamon, he wears a thick mustache, and his penetrating dark eyes are heavily browed. He's kind of like a cross between a Libyan terrorist, not that I'm obsessed with terrorists, and a weasel. That's the second time I've compared Terrence to a weasel. Go figure. But if the shoe fits, he has a passel of women. Now that I'm living here in town, he's trying to add me to his collection. He doesn't ask me out that often since he knows he can't expect anything. But every once in a while, he'll call. I'm like a game to him, a challenge he's trying to conquer. He won't believe me. So why do I say yes whenever he does ask me out? I guess it's nice to feel desirable once in a while. When your life's in the pits like mine, you'll put up with sweet-talking nonsense that means nothing. After all, under my surly exterior, I am a girl. So here we are in one of the dimly lit ballrooms of the Queen City University Hospital Banquet Center, seated at table five. There must be about 75 tables here, and they're filled with bigwigs from the hospital and the university. A dozen people are seated at our table, Terrence's partners in his orthopedic practice, along with their significant others. As he introduces me, I replay all the gossip he passed along in the car ride here. Dr. Harold Savage and his wife, Marion. Tracy Black, Terrence says as he begins introductions. Dr. Savage is civil, but doesn't smile. His wife is quite the opposite, very friendly with a lovely smile. Scoop on them? They're newly separated. Apparently, Savage is a jerk. Marion's only here as a favor. She's from well-connected money, and people like her. Dr. Lisa Chu and her husband, Lynn Goldberg, Terrence goes on. Scoop on them? Nothing juicy. He's an attorney, and he thinks she's too hard on their kids. They have two girls, one plays piano, one violin. They're good enough to play on the professional concert level, and they're only 9 and 11 years old. Apparently, Lynn told Lisa to chill out and stop being such an Asian mother. I'm introduced to two more male partners and their wives. No scoops on them. But the last partner I'm introduced to is another woman. And this is Dr. Dana Simmons, Terrence says. Scoop here? She's not seeing anyone at the moment, and she's gay. But her date for the evening is 
Mr. Phil Jackson, Terrence says, my brother. Terrence told me earlier he thought his brother would enjoy this evening's event, so he talked Dana into inviting him. He'd also said, gotta keep Phil out of trouble. But when I'd asked him to explain that, he'd only quipped, oh, just a joke, Tracy baby. I'm seated next to Phil. He's actually better looking than his brother. They share the same complexion and facial features. But Phil has no mustache. His eyes are larger and his brows aren't as heavy. He's also bigger with broader shoulders, not Weasley built like his brother. Perhaps it's my imagination, but Phil seems to regard me warily. In addition, he has an eye tick, and whenever I try to talk to him, he only provides one-word responses. Terrence is on my other side, and he speaks enough for three people. So, no loss that Phil is a dud in the conversation department. Or maybe Phil's just suspicious of me and doesn't want to reveal too much about himself because he knows that I'm a private investigator. Who knows? Gotta keep Phil out of trouble. Maybe he does have something to hide. I take a quick glance at everyone seated at our table. Aside from Phil's behavior, I don't notice anything strange immediately. But then I see that the jerk, Dr. Savage, is scowling. His wife, or soon-to-be ex-wife, Marion, is seated on Terrence's opposite side. She and Terrence are yucking it up quite enthusiastically, and Savage does not appear pleased about this. Terrence is basically a jerk, too, but at least he's got charm. I gaze around the room. This is a high-security affair. All hospital and university staff were instructed to wear their IDs. All guests were issued lanyards with their names and an individual barcode. The shake's safety is a big deal, and since metal detectors were deemed inappropriate and demeaning for this crowd of elite professionals, gorillas are stationed at each exit. Okay, they're not really gorillas. They're just very large security personnel, huge hulking men that must weigh a minimum of 250 pounds each. Others are stationed at random points outside the ballroom. They're all dressed in dark suits and wear sunglasses. Yes, the room is dimly lit, but they're wearing shade so people won't know where they're looking. This way, they can see more of everything without letting a suspect or any persons involved in suspicious activities know they're being watched. I was a cop before I joined the FBI, from which I have since resigned, and I'm only 28, but more about my sorry life and new career as a PI later. When I walked in the room with Terrence earlier, I saw someone I knew, my neighbor, Dr. Omar Shaloub. He lives across the hall from me. He's Egyptian and teaches chemistry at the university. I've noticed suspicious meetings in his apartment on Friday nights. Possible terrorist activity has yet to be proven, but I'll be keeping an eye on him. Right now, however, I need to stay focused on someone else. Our table isn't far from the guest of honor's table, and there's a young man with the Saudi entourage who bears an uncanny resemblance to Mohammed Ibrahim Rahim, a Saudi terrorist on the FBI's most wanted terrorist list. I worked on that case up until my resignation. I've seen pictures of that joker with and without facial hair, with and without glasses, bald and with a full head of hair. The more I look at this guy, the more I'm convinced it's him. He's in his late 20s with a slender frame. This evening, he's clean-shaven. His eyes are black, his jawline prominent, and his face sharp-planed. His thick, dark hair appears matted with gel to keep its waves in place. This is a black tie affair. 
the three older Saudi men at the Sheikh's table are dressed in traditional Saudi garb. The five younger men, including the one I'm keeping watch on, are in Western attire, midnight blue tuxes with silk lapels to be exact. What if the Sheikh and his entourage are imposters? What if they're all terrorists? Then again, what if they're not, but they're unaware that Rahim is? What if Rahim's here to blow us up to kingdom come? Cincinnati's not exactly an ideal place for a terrorist attack. I mean, it's not like we're known worldwide for much of anything aside from our chili, so I guess that's a good thing. But what if this guy wants to show us that, as Americans, we're not safe from terrorism anywhere? Not even in a Midwestern town that can boast of not one, but two professional sports teams that suck. And blowing up this particular locale would make an extremely strong statement. This room is filled with some of the best in Cincinnati's medical community. If we're obliterated along with the hospital and other attacks are planned throughout the city, medical care will be compromised. At peak alert, my adrenaline is pumping. I sit up straighter. Rahim is looking at his cell phone. He's sending a text. Maybe he's not working alone. I uncross my legs as I see him standing up. He's still looking at his cell phone. He's heading to one of the banquet room exits. I smoothly excuse myself from the table. I follow him, deciding that I'll distract him, throw him off his game. Once he leaves the banquet room, I'm not too far behind him. Sir, I call. He ignores me. Sir, he's still ignoring me and walks into the men's room. This is a matter of national security, and in moments, I'm in there too. That's all for today. So thank you so much for listening. And please visit my website, www.mariamckenziewrites.com. Drop me a line. I would love to hear from you. Again, this is Maria McKenzie, and you've been listening to Provocative History.